last week talking about uh, self, self-love and these teachings on selflessness. And uh, normally, normally I'm here, it's more like uh, usually there are a few weeks between times that I'm here and it's really nice to be, uh, to be back uh, and to be able to continue, continue this thread with you. So maybe just hands, how many people were here last week? Okay, so, great. So self uh, self love is is often contrasted with selflessness, or that it feels like the way that sometimes they're framed in the mind. They feels like they compete against one another. And last week I suggested that perhaps we can think of a kind of continuum of acceptance of what's arising moment by moment. And at one point in that continuum, there's very little acceptance and a lot of self-harshness. And then somewhere else in that continuum, there's really quite a bit of acceptance, warmth, openness to what's arising. We call that self-love. And then we continue to say yes to what's arising. And we know something new about feeling like me, feeling like a self. And I suggested that um, there's value in and of itself in self, in loving oneself and being kind and gentle with oneself. But that in a certain way, self-love is, um, supports the insight into selflessness insofar as the, the self that is loved is much easier to let go of than the self that is hated. Self that is hated is a kind of sticky preoccupation where we can't quite allow the moment to be what it is. And so um, we see that in, in self-hatred, uh, the self is taken so seriously. Yeah? It's like this really urgent thing, me and my problems. Uh, it's, there's no humor at all in self-hatred, right? Um, but then we think, okay, what is self-love? And it's not like, I am Matthew and I am good. Right? It's much more, it's much more just like, you know, when I think about what self-love is, I think much more like, yeah, I'm good at that and bad at this and whatever, you know, whatever. I don't know. I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. Like that loosening of the kind of self-definition, the flexibility of that heralds the insight 
into selflessness. Self-love is, is not so much like um, this rigid affirmation of who we are. It's much more like we stop taking the self and its strengths and weaknesses so seriously. We stop evaluating ourselves against a certain metric. And so in an important sense, the healthy sense of self, the self that is loved, is an expression of non-clinging. This is a couple psychologists, researchers, Kirk Kirk Brown and uh, Richard Ryan, both of whom are quite quite interested in, in mindfulness. They write, the question becomes not merely how high or how low self-esteem is, but what one is doing when evaluating the self as an object. The very process of placing oneself in the role of object and then evaluating its worth is problematic. There are people who are preoccupied with their worth. They regularly appraise themselves, compare themselves to others, and struggle to ward off threats to a positive view of self. Whether such individuals come away with positive or negative conclusions, the very fact that one's esteem is in question suggests a psychological vulnerability. Optimal health is more likely when self-esteem is not a concern because the worth of the self is not an issue. The worth of the self is not at issue. It's not, that's not the question. And maybe you can get a little hit of what that's like to not put the self into question. to not even ask about one's basic value. And it's so, it's so close, uh, for me at least, it's so close to metta, to loving kindness, where we're not, trying to establish the self as this and that, but we're actually trying to connect with a worthiness that is beneath all self-harshness and all self-affirmation, with a kind of innocence of our being. But of course, we get preoccupied with our wins and our losses, with our successes and our failures, with the ways we perform well or don't. Adam Adam Phillips, the writer and psychologist too, There are, as we know, people around for whom being successful has not been a success. But there may also be people around for whom success itself is a distraction, for whom there is no language available to describe a good life free of success. We police ourselves with purposes 
our ambitions, our ideas and success stories that lure us into the future can too easily become ways of not living in the present or of not being present at the event, a blackmail of distraction. Believing in the future can be a great deadener. Perhaps we've been too successful at success and failure and should now start doing something else. Perhaps we've been too successful at success and failure and should now start doing something else. So we can each uh, ask ourselves, what do we have a language for describing the good life that is not in the shadow of success and failure? Again, this points us to kind of, yeah, something, something uh, very blameless about being human, something very, very innocent. I, I don't know about the Buddha nature, but I do know that there are ways of ways of being with ourselves where um, there's no question of our of our worth where that very question feels like a kind of violence in a way. And we connect with something uh, that, is, uh, that is blameless, blameless. Now, sometimes, as I talked about last, last week, sometimes selflessness is... Um, this insight is really, it's really pointing to what, what I would call a mystical, mystical experience. Hopefully that's not too reductionistic. Like when you give it a name, it sounds less sexy, you know, mystical insight. But I think there's a lot of, um, kind of uh, looseness in how we talk about it in it winds up getting more confusing than it may need to be. So I will talk about this insight as a kind of crack in the ordinary mode of consciousness. But, but before I do that, I want to say that, that in the suttas, in the, the Buddha's uh, sayings and teachings. It's not, it's not always um, characterized in that way. This teaching, this teaching on not-self or selflessness is much more characterized as a way of helping us let go, as a kind of strategy for looking at experience that makes letting go seem more natural, intuitive, obvious. So this is the, the from the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, the simile of the snake. The Buddha says, um, uh, what do you think, monks, is corpore Corporeality permanent or impermanent? Is physicality, the senses, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Lord. And 
What is impermanent? Is it painful or pleasant? Painful, Lord. What is impermanent, painful, subject to change, is it fit to be considered thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. Certainly not, Lord, they answer. Seeing this, the well-instructed disciple becomes, strong word, disgusted with corporeality, becomes disgusted with the other aggregates, with feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness, disgusted. Through his being disgusted, passion fades away. Uh, Passion having faded away, he is freed. In him who is freed, there is knowledge of freedom. And so here you are hearing uh, not a celebration of some mystical insight or a sense of freedom or the cessation of suffering. You're really hearing the teaching on not-self as (coughs) very closely connected to the teachings on impermanence, and dukkha, and dissatisfaction, dukkha, very closely linked. And the the insight into anatta, into selflessness, is much more a, a kind of acknowledgement, like, I can't squeeze well-being out of this thing, out of this feeling, out of this body out of these thoughts. And so this implication is let go, let go. This is one uh, approach and This, this kind of letting go actually uh, leads to something like, um, uh, sometimes it's called like, dis, I think Pema Chodron maybe used the phrase disenchantment with samsara. Disenchantment with the kind of cycles, the rhythms of dissatisfaction. And in this sense, the teaching is, is preparing us for uh, deeper and deeper forms of letting go. And in that same sutta, the Buddha says, Therefore, uh, give up whatever is not yours. Your giving it up will for a long time bring you welfare and happiness. And what is it that's not yours? Then the answer Everything. Now, that's one way of approaching this teaching. Often, often, um, when when the teaching is uh, selflessness is described, it is more of. uh, pointing to an experiential insight, pointing to something that is known wordlessly, known about the nature of subjectivity, about the nature of awareness. And um, it's tricky because we, I'm giving a talk on this, right? And we're going to naturally try to think our way into the insight of selflessness. But when we try to do that, we're really thinking of like a better decorated self, you know, like an addition in a way. Just how our 
the mind works. We envision an really a kind of improvement or another possession. And the mind is so, um, you know, Jack says it's like the mind has no shame. even with the insight, the kind of egoic forces sort of regroup and crystallize and it becomes a kind of possession. And so I am not joking when I say that I found myself on more than one occasion bragging about how deeply I understood selflessness, (laughs) right? just the insanity of that, right? But it's a testament to the ways, the kind of forces of clinging and the sense of possessiveness, of owning an insight of, right? Just reconstitutes, like an amoeba, sort of taking on board an insight. So what what can we say experientially about this? Um, This is Andy Olinsky, the Buddhist uh, scholar. Grasping is not something done by the self. Rather, the self is something done by grasping. Uh, to paraphrase how the matter is put in, in the, the uh, sutta I just mentioned, only when there is what belongs to a self is there a self. It turns out in the moment of trying to hold on to what is continually slipping away or trying to push away what is relentlessly arising, the moment of grasping, a self is conjured up. The self can only exist as a fleeting attitude towards experience, one in which the person who likes or does not like what is happening is invented and defined. And so part of what we're training to do in our mindfulness with the steadiness that we cultivate over the months and years of practice, the steadiness that we cultivate in retreat. So we're actually training ourselves to, uh, to see the way in which grasping fixates a self, the way in which the self is invented or manufactured by that grasping. And to not grasp means we need to see. We we can't let go of that which is not seen. And the grasping of the self is a kind of uh, often quite subtle. We feel relaxed and peaceful, perhaps. We feel like maybe we're seeing impermanence, we're seeing anicca, we're seeing change, we're sitting here seeing change. But we're seeing change from the confines of self. We're looking out from the ground of self. But what is that ground? We have to get to know that ground. We have to know it as ground. It's the perspective we take for granted. It feels like um, the self in an important way feels like um, 
There's a philosopher who used the phrase God's eye view. God's eye view. And in a certain way, the self pulls us out of the world and feels like we're looking out on the world from somewhere like not in it. But in our practice, we're learning to actually see the experience, see the experience that feels like the ground of self. And it's more subtle than the pain in the knee and more subtle than the argument in the mind. But it's made of the same stuff. So we start to get still and to sense what feels like it's not moving within us. The self feels like it's not moving. Whatever is, feels like it's not moving is just not being seen clearly enough. And so the attention is directed to that which actually feels still, that which feels like it's receiving experience. And it's very closely linked with discursive thought. The kind of maybe more subtle levels of the, you know, the documentary voiceover narrative situation that has been running forever. But there are kind of registers of it, and there are some that are more subtle. That the subtle strands of the voiceover that keep us oriented, self here, world there. Nisargadatta says, to say, I know myself is a contradiction in terms, for what is known cannot be myself. What is known cannot be myself, which is to say, what is known as changing, what is known as arising and passing, cannot be the ground of being. When we infuse that, uh, the sense of I amness with enough uh, mindfulness, and with enough uh, kind of open-heartedness, non-resistance, when we um, open the heart so deeply to ourselves, to the self as it's arising, there's a kind of um, less and less friction with the moment. The self is a kind of friction. So the heart relaxes and uh, what I, people experience this in different ways, but um, often there's a, a kind of sense of the front edge of the perspective that falls away. 
It's like we've been living behind a glass window our whole life. A little bit separate from nature. And the insight into selflessness, it's like a rejoining of nature. It's how it feels. Like coming home to nature, knowing self as nature. And that sense of distance, the God's eye view that is outside of space and time, that is in a certain way outside of the world. That, that falls away. And with it, the kind of alienation, the subtle strand of alienation that we've just acclimatized to. There's a sense of like, being the world, not in the world, like being the world. And um, in that knowing, the world becomes safe. Experience becomes safe. And we become safe for the world. Now, usually this, the way, the, the insight, the experience is precipitated is through attention to a Nietzsche, attention to change. And change, <coughs> not at the level of people, places, things, but change at the level of phenomena the level of experience arising and passing. And in the Vipassana world, the kind of cultivation of this insight, is it's almost always described in the context of seeing anicca deeply, seeing change deeply, seeing the rapidity of arising and passing But that's not the only way that people find their, their way into the understanding. Um, in, it's primarily in other traditions, um, and, it's, uh, and I have not, not, I've done very little practice in these other traditions formally. Uh, but the, the insight into selflessness is, um, is not, um, doesn't depend on, on Anicca, doesn't depend on Anicca having a kind of undertow to it. Anicca can have an undertow, it's like pulling us in everything we think we know, everything we think we are gets pulled in through that undertow. But in this way, it's not change actually, it's simply looking in for the center point in one's being and not finding it. And it's said that it's in that first moment of not finding 
that we see something important. Maybe you get a sense of some of the openness of not finding. Because it does feel like somewhere in here is me. The Matthew within Matthew. It's not exactly, I don't know where, but it feels like it's somewhere. And then we look. Where is the center of will, judgment, choice? Do we find a center? within experience. What we find is the center, uh, what, what I've, I've mentioned here before, what Dan, Dan Dennett called the center of narrative gravity. There is a center of narrative gravity in the sense that there's a kind of um, a gravitational pull, a sense of the self, where we make our home is in that little swirl of thought. But that's not actually our home. And so we look, we don't find. Sometimes that brings us into connection with ourselves as nature. So a famous description of this, uh, this insight from uh, Douglas Harding, who was 33. And I think a, a, a contemplative, um, he was in the Himalayas when uh, this experience uh, arose. So he writes, he's yeah, 33 at the time. What actually happened was something absurdly simple and unspectacular. I stopped thinking. A peculiar quiet, an odd kind of alert limpness or numbness came over me. Reason and imagination and all mental chatter died down. I forgot who and what I was, my name, manhood, animalhood, all that could be called mine. It was as if I'd been born that instant brand new, mindless, innocent of all memories. There only existed the now, the, that present moment and what was clearly given in it. To look was enough. And what I found was khaki trouser legs terminating downwards in a pair of brown shoes. Shirt sleeves terminating sideways in a pair of pink hands and a shirt front terminating upwards in absolutely nothing whatever. Certainly not in a head. Oh yeah, this is called unhaving no head. Um, it took me no time at all to notice that this nothing, this hole where a head should have been, was no ordinary vacancy, no mere nothing. On the contrary, it was very much occupied. It was a vast emptiness filled, a nothing that found room for everything, room for grass, trees, shadowy distant hills, and far above them snow peaks like a row of angular clouds riding the blue sky. I'd lost a head and gained a world. 
It was the revelation at long last of the perfectly obvious. It was a lucid moment in a confused life history. It was naked, uncritical attention to what had been all along staring me in the face, my utter facelessness. There arose no questions, no references beyond the experience itself, but only a peace and quiet joy and the sensation of having dropped an intolerable burden. Now, when we hear that, this is pointing to the kind of experiential insight, not a claim about biology or about the truth of the world, in my opinion but a way of experiencing life where we no longer sense a center point and the freedom that comes with that. Uh, it's interesting, I think last time I read a poem by Rumi where one of the, the famous lines is, live in the nowhere that you come from. And you have eyes that see from that nowhere. So that's a 13th or 12th century Sufi, Persian Sufi. And here we are in Woodacre. There's Harding in the Himalayas. Heard a story that uh, one person sitting a retreat, the teacher said, um, said something that, that um, brought this insight into clarity and said, um, you are not your face. You are not your face. And the way I hear that is, is when we imagine the center point of our being, it's often here. And our face, the intimacy of that feels, it feels so close, so cozy that it feels like me. You are not your face. Now, at the same time, this insight is uh, not ethically neutral. And so when you know <clears throat> that you are not your face, the image of your face will break your heart wide open. because the drama of self becomes so poignant, so touching. And the face <coughs> conveys the drama of self. We wear our self on our faces. The contortions of I amness are worn on the face.
but when we know we're not our face. Love, a kind of love arises that feels so uh, like the most natural, spontaneous thing we've ever done in our life. So effortless. And so there's again this convergence of selflessness and self-love. And of course, uh, a love for, for all faces, for all beings. Norman Fisher. When you actually enter the path and go down the road a little way and then wake up one day and realize to your surprise that you're actually committed to this. When that happens, a whole other life comes into view you find that you've formed your life, literally, around the practice, and you actually begin to forget about the life you thought you wanted, and the life you thought you were making, the life you were hoping for, or the life you thought you should have been having. Instead, practice becomes your life, and life becomes your practice. Practice is no longer something you do to enhance your life or help it along. It is your life. One day, you kind of realize this. And you lose the life you thought you wanted or the life you thought you had. But this is very liberating. This is really great. It's wonderful to disappear into your practice. It's wonderful not to have to worry anymore about being somebody or something, which is such a struggle. And you no longer have to work overtime to avoid life's difficulties. People work their entire lives to avoid life's difficulties, and they're never successful at that. You can give up that effort altogether. You don't have to defend or protect yourself anymore. This is great. I can't tell you how great this is. It's not dramatic. It's not colorful. It's not a big deal. It's very subtle. Maybe nobody even notices. So let's just sit for a moment. Letting go of the words.
letting go of the need to make anything of yourself, to understand be anything at all. So may our efforts here, together tonight, may the good efforts of our lives be a cause and condition for the reduction of suffering for more joy, more safety in this world. Thank you. Have a good uh, have a good week. Nice to be with you all.